Hello there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, episode 83, Red October. Okay, with over a month's worth of bookkeeping finally taken care of, we can finally begin the brutally painful birth of what would become the Soviet Union. The listener should take care to note that as bad as things had been in the years building up to the final October Revolution, it was the years after that truly fixed the course for the new state. The Bolshevik seizure of power set off a civil war longer and more destructive than Russia's time spent in World War I. It would see the nation fragmented into pieces and only reassembled after the most terrible of efforts. Hunger would stalk the land as armies on both sides descended into organized banditry. The cities would, as a result, be hollowed out, their occupants sent fleeing into the countryside to try and be closer to food sources. The dislocation of infrastructure and isolation from foreign markets would starve Russian industry, effectively resetting it from a kinda, sorta, partially industrialized to a mostly unindustrialized economy. The Bolsheviks would win, but in order to hang on, they'd have to resort to the most extreme measures from a human misery standpoint, and even after such sacrifices, would be forced to compromise their own ambitions. But that won't be for a while down the road. Where we left off last week, the legendary revolution of October 1917 hadn't even gotten off the ground. And this latest round of revolution was no sure thing. The Bolshevik flirtation with an uprising in July 1917 had ended in disaster, with inaction among the far left, allowing the provisional government to put it down and retain power. Which, considering the effectiveness of the provisionals, that really wasn't a good sign for future success. But luckily, the government got them firmly back in the game with a terrible air of judgment of its own. With the army disintegrating and the Germans on the move, Kerensky, in his new capacity as head of the provisional government, appointed Lavar Kornilov as the new commander-in-chief. The assignment was made with a few conditions that Kornilov laid out. He pressed for the death penalty to be reinstituted in the army to restore order and for his command to no longer be subject to civilian oversight. He got the death penalty reinstated, but officially got turned down for supreme authority over the army. Kerensky had picked him for his disciplinarian streak and also to shore up his own position back in the capital. Kornilov, it was feared, would install himself as dictator if given too much power. This fear was borne out by Kornilov's relentless demands for extraordinary measures to be taken in order to continue the war. The general wanted the death penalty to be extended to civilians and considered factory strikers and those attending workers' meetings to be prime candidates for the punishment. Quotas would be instituted in the factories. Any factories producing war material, which by that point was most of them, would be brought under military control, along with the railways. The demands were impossible to be met and unnerved anyone not on the reactionary side of society. Simply put, the new army chief was living in a fantasy land where he really thought he could overcome, in a fortnight, all the breakdowns that had already taken root over entire years through some good old-fashioned army discipline. Okay, maybe living in a fantasy land is a little harsh as Kornilov's political instincts were practically nil, so really it was just more him being unimaginative and kind of a dullard. He just wasn't a very thoughtful guy. He had come to Kerensky's attention because many of the leading right-wing politicians and businessmen, among them the cadets, were anxious for a strong hand to protect their positions in society from further revolution. If the nation disintegrated, they couldn't continue being proper elites, could they? So, 
Kornilov was singled out mostly because of his ability to make the hard calls when it came to treating his own men. And it was many of these supporters who were encouraging the general to overcome Kerensky's objections to tighter state controls with force. On August 10, 1917, Kornilov arrived in Petrograd to personally persuade Kerensky to enact his proposals. He had shown up uninvited, and Kerensky put off the general, growing in fear that there really would be a military coup. Which was bad, because Kerensky wanted to be the one to coup the government and install himself as the nation's dictator. Kornilov ordered an army corps under one General Krymov to move to Veleke Luki, a town far enough from Petrograd that the troops wouldn't fall prey to the revolutionary atmosphere there, but close enough to strike at the capital if need be. Just days later, Kerensky would make one last stab at bridging the left-right divide that had ruined the provisional government and held a conference to bring everybody together again. As you might guess, it didn't work. The old social divisions reared their ugly head once again, and the spirit of February 1917 was long gone. This was most clearly demonstrated by Kornilov's entry into Petrograd on August 12th to attend the conference, as he was carried out of his train car by jubilant officers. The Black 100s cheered him from the streets as his motorcade made its way through the capital, and he was lauded as the nation's savior by the right. Once the conference got underway, Kornilov gave a very boring speech, but was cheered to high heaven for it by conservatives nevertheless. The left, represented by members of the Soviet and other workers' groups, quietly noted the disdain they were being held in by their opposite numbers. It ultimately didn't matter much what Kerensky had to say. Everybody had made up their minds and knew where they stood. There would be no national reconciliation. Kornilov started talking to people about both overthrowing the provisional government and maybe propping it up, with the brewing plots all agreeing that the nation couldn't continue as it had been going. And this is where the details get a little opaque in who was backstabbing who and when. My take is that Kerensky lured Kornilov into a trap to get rid of him and make his own position stronger. His defenders would claim that he couldn't make up his mind about whether to throw in the left or the right, and simply changed his mind at a decidedly delicate time. Basically, what happened was that on August 22nd, the Deputy Minister of War on behalf of Kerensky took a little trip down to the Stavka and Mogilev and discussed Kornilov's desired reforms, indicating to Kornilov that he was going to get what he wanted. There would be a national council of a few men, including Kornilov, that would run the country. However, once news would get out that the nation was effectively being converted into a kind of dictatorship, the capital was going to explode. Kornilov's troops stationed south of Petrograd needed to begin moving on the city to put down the guaranteed uprising and restore order. This sentiment was reinforced by a visit from Prince Lvov on the 24th. He might have been out of office, but that didn't mean he stopped being a political gadfly. The prince also discussed the potential of a single man taking on dictatorial powers, which Kornilov was very interested in, even if it meant that Kerensky would play the dictator for that moment. He agreed with Lvov and requested Kerensky come down to Mogilev next in order to hash out the details. In the meantime, on August 25th, Kornilov gave the order and his troops began moving towards Petrograd. This is where Kerensky made his final choice on the matter. When Lvov got back, the prince stated that Kornilov was demanding he be appointed dictator, which, hey, that's not exactly what had been discussed. This is where the historical record probably becomes too unreliable with too many deferring claims. Against my better judgment, I leave it to you to decide where everybody stood. 
both Kerensky and Kornilov were angling for a dictatorship, with Kornilov claiming that he was open to working under Kerensky if only he would grab power. Lvov, for his part, either offered Kerensky's terms of negotiating a dictatorship with Kornilov as a false pretense to further lure him in, or simply acted as the messenger of the general's demands for personal power, to which Kerensky would have to take as a sign of hostility. Either because Kerensky was setting off a trap, or if he was genuinely alarmed at the prospect of Kornilov's troops marching on the capital, he decided to reveal the general's role in all the scheming. First, he reached out to Kornilov via telegraph, vaguely asking him to repeat what had been discussed with Lvov, to which Kornilov responded that he had discussed pushing through his reforms and installing a new dictatorial government and that Kerensky really should come down to Mogilev. Satisfied that with a copy of the message and Lvov's testimony that he could convince the cabinet that Kornilov was launching a coup, Kerensky convened a meeting of that group a little after midnight on August 27th. He made his case and asked for emergency powers, which, like in every other case where somebody asks for those kinds of powers, he meant that he wanted to be named dictator. That power move kind of backfired, though, as much of the cabinet simply resigned, not wanting to be associated with the decision. Kerensky didn't mind, though, and simply declined to replace them, becoming de facto dictator. Kerensky then demanded Kornilov resign, but the general was in Mogilev and had no idea what was going on. It would take the full cabinet to sack him, not Kerensky alone. Of course, he didn't know about the mass walkout and simply assumed Kerensky had been arrested by the Bolsheviks and that he was acting under duress. It was only after a couple of days that it fully dawned on Kornilov that he was getting a fast one pulled over on him. He decided not to take it lying down and declared he would be the one to save Russia from a provisional government which had failed it so miserably. Kerensky on the 29th declared his assumption of direct command over the army and ordered General Krymov to halt his advance on Petrograd. In the capital, the Soviets sprung into action to defend against the perceived counter-revolution that Kornilov was ordering. That is, they rhetorically sprang into action. By the end of August, the connecting tissue between the groups of soldiers and armed workers was the Bolsheviks, and it was they that the Soviet depended on to actually deliver the troops to defend them. This is an abject historical lesson about where power is in a crisis. The Soviet had presumably the mass support of the people in Petrograd, but the Bolsheviks, who were only a small part of the Soviet, were the ones able to mobilize the armed force. The mobilization wasn't terribly necessary either. Many of the troops Kornilov wanted to send north to the capital had their trains diverted in all sorts of wrong directions by hostile railway workers. Krymov's soldiers, and indeed Krymov himself, had set out on their advance under the impression they were defending the provisional government. Upon learning through Soviet agitators about the changing situation and that there had in fact been no Bolshevik uprising, they started deserting Kornilov's command and went over to the Soviet. On August 31st, Krymov arrived in Petrograd to explain he had only been trying to bolster the government, not overthrow it but Kerensky was looking for targets and promised he'd be tried along with his former boss. In response, Krymov shot himself. The Kornilov affair, as it became known, was by that point over, although whether assigning blame to Kornilov alone over the incident might be a little unfair as it was Kerensky who had assumed dictatorial powers. So let's be balanced and call out both men for being power-hungry in their own way. Kornilov in that disgustingly listless conservative way that was reminiscent of an out-of-touch uncle who wasn't that capable but still thought he could run the world. 
and Kerensky, who was much more active in mind and energy, but also a weasley little guy who could never quite make up his mind until the last moment, by which time it was too late. In the aftermath of the affair, Kornilov was placed under house arrest on September 1st, and General Alexeev resumed his old position of commander-in-chief of the army, acting as Kerensky's number two. But despite losing the day, for Kornilov, this was not the end. For Kerensky, it was nearly so. He had reawakened a Bolshevik militarism that had been thought put down in July, and due to his treatment of Kornilov, had alienated the right from him. If he thought of himself as the new czar, the comparison was apt, as he had no friends to rely on. The disintegration of the army accelerated one last time all through September. This time, troop contingents of the tens of thousands started quitting the front. Most of the rank and file were horrified by the entire affair and didn't want to get caught up in a sequel to it. For the Bolsheviks, the affair was a godsend when it came to getting the population ready to fight under their banner. Most of the common people correctly saw the whole blow-up as a simple feud between two aspiring dictators, a perception completely borne out when Kerensky assumed those kinds of powers in the aftermath. The standing of the provisional government was ruined beyond repair, as it had always been allowed to exist at the leisure of the capital's masses. Now, those masses didn't trust it, and the incumbent leadership in the Soviet was also compromised by its past unwillingness to take power for itself and its continued efforts to act in coalition with the government. Remember, the Soviet was at that time dominated by the SRs and Mensheviks, both of whom at various points had joined in the provisional government. The Soviet in general still had the support of the masses. It was just that those masses were more receptive to a new direction in the leadership. Enter the Bolsheviks. They had always been outsiders, and they weren't tainted by failures of the past. And they had always consistently advocated that only a complete dissolution of the old state, not just some half-hearted reforms on its zombified corpse, was going to be the way to go. And at that moment, it did indeed look like the way to go. This was reflected by a shocking rise of support in the cities. In Moscow city government elections on September 24th, for example, they scored 51% of the vote, when in June they had been polling at 11%. Worth noting was that the cadets, now solidly a right-wing party of the bourgeois, increased their share from 17 to 31%. The parties between them were wiped out as lines in the sand started to be drawn. And that was just an election for the official city government, too. The Bolsheviks gained an outright majority in the Petrograd Soviet on August 31st and the Moscow Soviet on September 5th. Their sibling rivals, the Mensheviks, got squeezed out so hard that by the end of September they had stopped functioning in Petrograd as an organization. Further afield, the Bolsheviks had begun hijacking the Soviets in the provinces by installing themselves in positions of leadership on the various committees. So even when they were in the minority, they oftentimes still spoke for the local Soviet. On the horizon, too, was a national conclave of all the Soviets in October. People started to wonder what would happen when the Bolsheviks started controlling a national platform. Few thought the constant calls for violent insurrection to be mere propaganda. Everybody figured they were going to make a play. The only question by September was when. With the ascendancy of the Bolsheviks, Lenin found himself back in a position where his conduct could make or break the country. His hesitation in July had almost been fatal. Only the weakness of the provisional government had spared his faction. But even at this hour, he hedged his bets. He still held publicly to armed revolution, but also kept to a low profile. 
The Kerensky government had ordered the release of leftist political prisoners from the July days in early September, but Lenin lingered in his Finnish exile for weeks, and even once he got back to Petrograd in early October, he hid out and had no direct contact with his own leadership for a week. Not exactly the most inspiring examples of courage, especially when things were looking so good for him. Still, once he inserted himself back into the fold, he started hectoring his colleagues to get their plans for a revolution underway. A kind of collective hesitancy, though, threatened to delay any such move again, and even Trotsky, who, by this point, switched over to the Bolsheviks after he had been released from prison on September 4th, expressed his doubts. Most of them favored waiting for the National Congress of the Soviets, where they figured they'd be able to set the agenda and simply declare that they were in charge. The most open breach was when two top Bolsheviks, Grigory Zinoviev and Lev Kamenev, published a public letter in a newspaper that Maxim Gorky had started up that argued against an armed insurrection and how it was a bad idea, which was also a public admission that one was being planned, which set Lenin right off. But helpfully, things were too far gone for any of that to matter. The provisional government was mostly just Kerensky and a powerless coterie of ministers holed up in the Winter Palace, with only a smattering of troops stationed there to protect them. There just wasn't much of an old Russia left to preserve. Contrary to most of his fellows, Lenin was intent on forcing the revolution to go forward before the Congress of the Soviets took place. Sure, that gathering would carry enough weight that they could probably legislate a revolution, but that would mean sharing power with Mensheviks and the SRs. And Lenin, far from being the wilting lily of July any longer, wanted it all immediately. He convened a meeting of the Bolshevik Central Committee on October 10th. The meeting was attended by only 12 of the 21 members, but Lenin laid down the gauntlet anyway and forced a vote on an armed uprising. It passed 10-2, with only Zinoviev and Kamenev still dissenting. With this vote, Lenin was from that point forward the undisputed driver of the Bolsheviks. His standing had been a little shaky due to his long exile and his early exit to Finland, but now the leadership were behind him. What remained was to get the supporting groups all on the same page. Doing that, though, was not going to be a given. Members of the Bolshevik military organization, the Petrograd Soviet, and the workers' organizations sat in on a follow-up Central Committee meeting on the 16th and expressed grave doubts about what was being planned. They were fully aware what Lenin was up to, and they warned that the workers and soldiers were not feeling up to overthrowing the government at that moment. Lenin, though, was all in on the idea and would not back down this time, and despite objections, the Central Committee again backed him. Zinoviev tried to delay the matter by demanding the Bolshevik representatives in the Soviet be consulted before any uprising was launched, which was voted down. Lenin was not suffering any further holdups. Kamenev, in response to the failed delays, resigned his post in the Central Committee and on October 18th again went to Gorky's newspaper, this time publicly arguing against a hasty uprising in the immediate future which, you know, broadcast again that there was an impending uprising to everybody in town. Lenin went tit-for-tat, though, and published his own public replies on the same day, denouncing Kamenev and Zinoviev as traitors. This was a serious breach with Lenin, and it would haunt the two for years to come. The public sniping made all the plotting impossible to ignore to everyone else, and for the Soviet, they damn well saw the danger of Lenin seizing power on his own they made the move of delaying the National Congress of the Soviets from the 20th to the 25th, hoping they could scramble more non-Bolsheviks to the capital. 
which of course backfired and just allowed the Bolsheviks to mobilize more of their own supporters and get their final plan straightened out. This wasn't going to be some lame-ass German push. This was going to work. And really, that was all the rest of the Soviet had planned as far as resistance went, just getting more representatives in the, into the Congress so they could try and vote down an armed uprising they knew was already coming. Part of that uh, tepid response was due to the non-Bolsheviks still being too scared to seize power for themselves, and partly because much of its membership sympathized more with Lenin's cause than they did the provisional government they would wind up defending had they actively opposed the uprising. Kerensky, meanwhile, stalked the Winter Palace, thinking himself the new czar of the country. He had indeed commanded both popularity and respect early in 1917, but he had failed to realize that his rise to the top was due to one disaster after another, allowing for leadership changes, and that each time he got ahead, the state lost more credibility. Now he was at the top, and he basically controlled only the palace. But there must have been something to the grandeur of the Winter Palace that deceived its occupants into thinking otherwise, because Kerensky still thought he was the master of Russia and had the people at his back, which, well, that wasn't true at all. His actual unpopularity was incredibly useful to Lenin, as the prospective opposition would not have a figure to rally around. In fact, it was more like they had a figure to be repulsed by. The right hated him because the whole Kornilov thing and the Entente had written him off once he stopped being a useful military ally. His delusions, though, finally convinced him that he would be able to stamp out the Bolshevik threat. Which, yeah, great. Good that he finally came around to seeing the true extent of the danger, but by that time, support in Petrograd just wasn't there to actually accomplish that. Lenin's biggest fear was that Kerensky would simply skip town and move the provisional government to Moscow and let the Germans advance into Petrograd, which afterwards they would presumably smash up the Soviet and all associated groups. But that would require cold-blooded sacrifice and the ability to admit that the situation was terrible, things that Kerensky really couldn't do at this point. Or at least he didn't have the stomach to do it. Instead, he decided on October 20th to send the compromised soldiers of the capital directly to the front and let the Germans deal with them. That would do one of two things. Either it would get rid of hundreds of thousands of mutinous troops, or it would force the Bolsheviks' hands before they were ready. Unfortunately for him, though, the Bolsheviks were ready, and the soldiers weren't going anywhere. In fact, the Petrograd garrison had already set up their own military revolutionary committee with which to coordinate the leadership of the various units stationed in the capital. This group meant that the garrison was now totally detached from the chain of command and was now its own faction, and by mid-October was operating openly as a body committed to defending the Soviet. Except it was actually controlled by the Bolsheviks, and its leading member was Trotsky, even as its actual chairman was a left SR. I mentioned earlier that the mid-level Bolshevik and Bolshevik-adjacent organizers had warned that the soldiers were unenthusiastic about an uprising. However true that might have been, the moment they were being ordered to the front to throw themselves into the German meat grinder, they freaked the hell out. Whatever troops didn't report to the MRC already instantly went over to that group for their leadership. The committee on the 21st, just a day after Kerensky's order, declared that the entire garrison of the city should be considered under their command. By the 23rd, this was the reality on the ground. Lenin had previously set the date for the uprising on October 25th. Two days before then, 
the Bolsheviks were already in effective control of Petrograd. But even still, just when you're thinking that the final line had been crossed, many Bolsheviks still thought about talking themselves out of overthrowing the government. Even Trotsky, who was running the Military Revolutionary Committee, didn't consider the provisional government overthrown and was not committed to doing it just yet. But early on the 24th, Kerensky decided to act aggressively again and sent a handful of troops to occupy a couple Bolshevik newspapers. This was a feeble gesture that Trotsky didn't want to take the bait for, as he didn't want to launch a revolution over a couple newspaper buildings being shut down. He did, though, begin deploying his troops onto the Petrograd streets, seizing the strategic parts of the city over the course of the day. There were some skirmishes with troops still loyal to the government, but they were easily swept aside. Much to Lenin's dismay, though, the Winter Palace and the members of the government were not seized on the 24th. The Congress of the Soviets would go ahead on the 25th without the government having been technically toppled. That would not prove to be a crippling setback, though, as the past few days had demonstrated that Bolshevik power in Petrograd would be too much for any other group in the city to resist. On the evening of the 24th, Lenin managed to pass through Petrograd in disguise which consisted of his absolute most trash clothes and a comical powdered wig, and linked up with Trotsky and the Bolshevik leadership. They were all gathered at the Smolny Institute, a palace-like school that had been commandeered as the joint Bolshevik-MRC headquarters for the revolution about to take place. Once together, they resolved to present a government made up of themselves to the Congress of the Soviets and basically dare them to say no, they weren't in charge. They debated the semantics of how to refer to themselves in a government capacity, which, yes, they were getting ahead of themselves, but you can forgive them because there really wasn't anyone around to stop them. Trotsky opined that they should go by people's commissars instead of ministers, which became the accepted nomenclature. Lenin rounded out the evening, dragging Kamenev relentlessly about his attempts to stymie the revolution, which, yes, despite their very public resistance, Kamenev and Zinoviev were welcomed back into the fold in time to partake in the actual revolution itself. Keep in mind, these guys for years only had each other, and conditional forgiveness came easy for them, which was probably where they ran into trouble during the 20s. Anyway, as the night of the 24th came to a close, the Bolsheviks weren't just ready, they were supremely confident. And as you might have seen coming, the 25th of October, 1917, and the Great Revolution is where I'm going to pick up next week. Join me then, comrades, and as always, thank you very much for listening. Mm -hmm.